0: James 1, we pick up this morning at verse 12, It's where we ended last time, we pick up at verse 12 and we consider through verse 16. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive a crown of life. Which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted. When he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Crown of life, verse 12. Reality of death, verse 15 do not err my beloved brethren father the thing that we are confronted with in this text is very be much beyond our comprehension concerning you in your purity in your holiness, in your righteousness. We cannot get our minds completely around the fact that in you, our God, is no evil inclination because everything about us is evilly inclined. Help us then today as we confront one of the great truths of theology, the truth of the character and holiness of our God. But then, Lord, before us is the practical truth of exactly how it is that sin operates in our lives. And you have identified the pattern, and you have identified the process in the light of the umbrella process of enduring to glory, enduring unto the crown of life, enduring to your pleasure and for our good. So help us then, as we seek to deal with the gravity of the text concerning thee, and the practicality of the text concerning us. And for that, we will praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. You know that God assigns all of his children time in the weight room for their own profit. God uses circumstances to test and to try us in order that he might move us out of periods of spiritual lethargy. There's not a believer here that couldn't give testimony of a period of spiritual lethargy in their life. God uses things to move us out of such period. God uses things to mellow us so that we do not uh, make mountains out of every mohill and treat every little bump and scrape as if in need of major surgery. I can't help but think about being a young pastor, you know, when I was serving the Lord in the days of my teens, with a clear focus that God had called me to preach, and starting to preach a little bit. Oh, my. When I preached as a teenager, everybody, I mean everybody, I mean every single person thought it was great. And when I was in Bible college and I preached, everybody, I mean everybody, thought it was great. When I became a pastor, I met people for the first time who did not think it was great. And the barrage of complaints from too loud, too long, to this, to that started. And here I am, 48 years later, sticking with the stuff. My point is simply this. As a preacher, you've got to learn how to deal with criticism. It doesn't mean you ignore it all. Some of the people that criticized me were right. And I had to say, you know what? You're right about that but an awful lot of what people said was just goofy and really evidence of their sin, not mine. Nonetheless, God takes a preacher through a process in which you're exposed to criticism, you're exposed to testing, you're exposed to the aspect of Baptist acting like Baptists in a church so that you can get over yourself so that you can learn to be a little more mellow and not treat every little criticism and every little bump as if somebody needs to bring out the scalpel and do major surgery. And then, of course, God treats us to times of testing to mature us so that we become more like the Savior. We sing, more like the Savior I would ever be, and then when God takes us through the process, we complain that we're becoming like the Savior, I guess. I don't know, but it's, there's a maturing process. James 1-12 commands us to count such times of testing a joy to let patience that is produced by testing do its persevering work, its strengthening work, and to ask God for wisdom whenever we lack it so that we can righteously endure the test. The believer that lives that way is called, in verse 12, blessed. And he is given a promise of reward called the laurel or crown of life. Now, those truths are immediately now followed by a strong warning based upon a theological assertion. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tested, tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. We are warned in verse 13 not to blame God if we fail the test of endurance and fall into sin. As Philip says it, We are never, ever to blame God for our bad behavior. And yet, blaming others, and even God, for sins that you or I commit is as old as the Garden of Eden. Adam said, it was the woman. The woman said, it was the serpent. And they both thought that God somehow was not really being good towards them. James 1.13 declares that God is apart and above evil appeal. God does not ever make evil appealing to us. If we sin, we have no one to blame but ourselves. The phrase, God cannot be tempted by evil, is really saying two things, not just one. The phrase does in fact mean that Holy God is incapable of sinful appeal. Think of it as the attraction of pieces of iron to a magnet. The magnet attracts the iron because the iron has something of the same nature as the magnet. The magnet does not attract gold. It does not attract silver. It does not attract lead. God is like gold. He is not in any way drawn or pulled or influenced by sin. The theological statement is God has no evil inclination. God has absolutely no evil inclination. No one should ever say, says the verse, that God is even indirectly responsible for evil. Now, the other element of indication in the statement, the theological assertion of verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. The other side of that last phrase is that God Uh, cannot be tempted of evil, uh, and it's to play upon the aspect of the appropriate pronoun that is inferred by the word evil. The word evil in that verse in the original is a genitive, masculine plural. The translation then would be, God cannot be tempted by evil men. In the Old Testament era, Israel is often tempted or Israel often, I should say, tempted or tested God. And yet here's a verse that says God cannot be tempted. And yet we know that the Lord Jesus said to Satan, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So can you do it you Do it, or can't you do it? Yep. Yep. Got some thinking to do. Knock off the cobwebs. Knock that dust out of the filter. Because this is one of those things that you got to kind of Shake it a little. Get ready to take it in. Whenever Israel suffered, they were quick to blame God, doubting his goodness and care. Again and again and again, whenever Israel suffered a a little, they uh, immediately began to doubt God's goodness and care, just like Adam and Eve began to doubt God's goodness in the garden. Israel was commanded not to put God to the test like that. Likewise, in the New Testament, Paul says that we ought not tempt Christ as some of them tempted and, here's the key phrase, were destroyed by serpents. Now, listen to me because it's a little hard to get a hold of, especially if you're a human being. Aren't we all? Uh, And so, here we go. God has no inclination toward evil. So, therefore, I must understand, God never reacts to my sin. He only acts in righteousness. God never reacts to my sin. He only acts in righteousness. So when Israel got involved in that process of blaming God and saying that somehow God was being less than good with them because they didn't have the things to eat they wanted or as often as they wanted or whatever the case may be, then ultimately they, uh, they uh, put God in a test, as it were. God who cannot be tested was nonetheless by human means thought to be in a test. And so God, who does not react, acted by serpents righteously biting the sinful whiners. So here's the two thoughts put together. The statement of verse 13, the theological statement of verse 13, combines to assure us that God has no capacity for evil, period. Neither can he respond kindly to sinful whiners? God cannot be tempted with evil, and thereby he cannot receive kindly to uh, uh, whining sinners. And yet he's a God of mercy and love who extends to sinners that they might be saved. And so in the harshest and strongest of words, James says, let none of you ever, 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 ever say, when you fail the test, I have been beat up by God. I've been treated mean by God. God has put me in a bad situation. No, don't let any man ever say that he is tempted. I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now the second truth of verse 13 is a straightforward revelation. God does not tempt anyone to evil, by evil, or with evil. God's resistant training is never purposed towards sinful failure. God does not try to trip us up. He ought to be trusted, and he ought to be sought. If you find yourself in the midst of a test, and you think that you don't know how to go through the test without sinning, you should ask of God wisdom who will give to all who ask him liberally that you might pass that test. When God is not trusted and when God is not sought, then sinful acts and attitudes become likely and we, to put it in the terms of the New Testament, we then enter into the temptation. What does it mean to enter into temptation? It doesn't mean that you're tested. To enter into the temptation means that you failed the test because you respond sinfully to the difficulty, to the suffering, to the thing that is brought before you. The very nature of God is pure, righteous, and apart from all evil. But the nature of mankind, since Adam, is sinful and clearly inclined toward evil. I want you to say something with me. You won't like it. I want you to say, I am inclined toward evil. Say it. I am inclined toward evil. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. James, starting with verse 14, is going to tell us exactly how evil temptation or temptation to sin still happens in my life. Still happens in the life of the child of God during the days of their earthly sojourn. As the commentator says it, the father of sin is Satan, but the mother of sin is our own personal desire, or if you will, our own evil inclination. So in this hour, we're going to work with the plain statements quickly in verses 14 to 16 to see the stepstones toward failure in a time of testing. We can also view the revelation here as the workings of the flesh. And so then consider with me, in the brief time that we have together, these Seven steps. Fifteen minutes, seven steps. Here we go. Number one, the desire for sin. The Greek word order in verse 14 is lust, drawn, enticed. We most usually think of lust in terms of sexual sin, but the word simply speaks of inward desire, longing, or craving. Like the reported desire of a pregnant woman for ice cream and pickles, the desire of a person is a very individualistic thing. On my day off, I always say to Sherry, where would you like to go eat today? And she usually says to me, I don't care. Where do you want to go? And I say, I don't care. Where do you want to go? Now, she has she cares. There's something in her brain. And frankly, I care too. But this is the game we play. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? and we act like neither one of us has a will until one of us reveals that we had a will all along and uh and you know that how that works how come all the married couples are smiling at me right now i'm not, i think that we've we've come uh, uncovered thing here uh, very individualistic will desire what do you want to eat where do you want to go what do you want to do very individualistic thing and so uh the bible says that uh Uh, where sin starts is with our own desires. Now, if you're hearing me right, that doesn't mean that every desire you have is sinful. It just means that sin is always on the table of your desires. Sin is always on the table of your desires. Sin is always a choice on your table. Always a choice on your table. Always. Never leaves. Always there. Desire for sin. The biblical emphasis is upon the universal inclination of human desire towards evil. This sense of lust or desire is a part of what we call human nature. The Greek word for lust or desire here is epithumia. It literally means upon heat. When bucks chase does, We call it the rut. And hunters know that bucks get stupid when caught up in reproductive desires. Temptation to sin starts within the buck. Starts within the doe. Starts within the nature of the person. And we know that it can make us stupid. And we know that it can make us inflamed when you think about how sin happens you should think it 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 starts right here it starts right here in the chest of your own desire all lust and human desire is not in and of itself evil but evil is a factor in response to any object of focus and in relationship to one's motivation. The mother of sin is our own personal desire. Number two, drawn to sin, the draw of sin. All individuals are drawn away, or more literally carried away, uh, out of bounds, uh, into sinful action and attitudes at times. If you've ever watched a defensive back, Uh, hit a wide receiver uh, after he catches the ball and knock him out of bounds, carry him out of bounds, tackle him out of bounds. That's exactly the, the word here, drawn away. To be carried away, to be drawn away out of bounds would be the most literal rendering of how it is that sin becomes active in our lives. The believer has a capacity to walk in the spirit and not to fulfill the desires of the sinful flesh. The believer is enabled to count a time of difficulty, joy, to let patience have its perfect work, and to pray for wisdom, resulting in faith and endurance. But the believer still has an evil inclination within, and that evil inclination, if drawn unto, will indeed carry an individual out of bounds. Unless, of course, they respond to that draw as instructed. You do not want to have God take away all of your desires, but rather to sanctify your desires in grace and truth. But the point to be made is that when sin calls you, when the magnet of sin draws upon your metal, your metal answers it. It calls, you are inclined to answer. It calls, you are inclined to answer. Number three, the dazzle towards sin. The word enticed, verse 14, is the common word for bait and invokes the way fish and animals can be lured or trapped. The desires and passions that we have for that which is outside the stated will of God acts like bait upon us it dazzles before us like the bright light on my nighttime bug catcher drawing us closer and closer to the trap of sin. Every year about this time, Sherry and I go to war with the field mice that love to winter in the basement of the personage. Uh, I would not mind uh, others to come and visit. I would not mind having family or friends be with us in the house, but there's something about them sneaky mice, I don't care to have them in there, and so we go to war with the mice. Some of the mice are quite smart, and they have found ways to eat along the edges of my trap. And I've become quite astute, and Sherry's become quite astute in knowing how to work the bait into the trap so that they get caught, even though they try to eat along the edges. You're smarter than mice. You too like to eat along the edges of sin, as do I. How close can I get and not cross the line We might not think it, but we often naturally live that way. Listen, God has ensured that the trap will get you if you eat along the edges. Before you get to that point, you need to look to God. You need to trust the Lord. You need to come back to his instruction and process. Your own sinful nature will work the bait to get you. If you think to eat a little and still walk away, you will find it impossible. You, will, you may say to me, Pastor, at this point it almost sounds like you speak of sin like it has a life of its own. Right. It does have a life of its own. Mine. It does have a life of its own. Yours. Only by active trust and obey can we who know the Lord endure rightly in the will of God. Number four, the delivery of sin. Lust, verse 15, is now presented to us illustratively as conception, gestation, and birth. Lust is presented to us as conception, gestation, and birth of sin. At a point in time, personal sinful desire, if not mortified, conceives. The word here means to seize or to take captive. Once hooked, the sinful act or attitude is born. I've long appreciated that statement of Luther, who said to believers, you cannot keep the crows of evil from flying over your head, but you do not need to let them build a nest. Number five, the development of sin. Sinful desire is never satisfied for long, if ever. Once sin is born, it demands to be fed and continues to grow and expand. Like one old-timer said it, that dog is always hungry. The self-propelled mower of sin can be stopped by the believer at any moment by turning to the Lord in acknowledgment of sin and confession. Forgiveness and cleansing are always a single, sincere prayer away. But if not prayed, sin bringeth forth death. Number six, the death result of sin. That self-propelling sin, if unchecked, will continue to mature to the point of death. Grown-up sin always ends in death. It might be the death of a marriage. It might be the death of another relationship on earth. It might be the physical death of a believer. The unsaved in their trespasses and sin will end in eternal death. But there is a direct line of connection between every single sin and death in some regard and those of us that have been delivered from the fear of eternal death for faith in Jesus Christ our Lord should not take lightly the fact that sin still leads to death doesn't lead to eternal death in the case of a believer but it still ultimately when grown up leads to death death is the result of all sin. And then, finally, verse 16, the deception of sin. The plain imperative is don't be caused to stray, don't err, my beloved brethren. You cause yourself to stray. You cause yourself to err by being spiritually ignorant or spiritually negligent. You can fall because you're unaware. You can fall because you're aware but sinfully willful. You and I can fall because of ignorance but we can also fall because of negligence. James says, do not be deceived. Do not be caused to stray. We have often taught you that the worst of deception is self-deception. John tells us that if any of us think we do not sin any longer, that we lie and deceive ourselves. We, and I speak of believers, are all susceptible to sin and accountable for the sin we commit throughout our earthly sojourn. God is never directly or indirectly responsible for sin in my life or yours. Ever. Yet we may well deceive ourselves by looking to excuse ourselves by blaming God or others, as Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. I shouldn't even blame the devil ever. As a believer, I should never blame the devil for my sin. For the battle of sin is within my own life. The devil cannot make me. Do it. The devil cannot make you. Do it. For a believer to say, oh, the devil, oh, the devil is to be marked by a diversion tactic for the self for the sake of self approval and pride don't blame the devil if you fall if you fail confess your sin to god it's your sin you're the sinner the fight is within you The good news from the Bible is you don't have to fight alone. You can call for the reinforcement. You have the Holy Spirit within. You and I must confess our susceptibility to sin and our accountability in sinning. You and I ought to follow the instructions to endure. And when you do fail, then confess that sin knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive that sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. May God be glorified in our obedience this week. And all God's people say, Amen.